I want to start with a word from 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Every one of us has received something, then haven't we? And the role of a steward is to get in between God and the thing he is doing, bringing those things with us to work on what God is doing. In Romans, Paul was more specific. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, God has given us each the ability to do certain things well. Now listen to the language. For instance, if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out whenever you know God is speaking through you. If your gift is serving others, then serve them well. If you're a teacher, do a good job of teaching. If your gift is to encourage others, do it. If you have money, share it generously. If God has given you leadership, take that responsibility seriously. And if you have the gift of showing kindness, then do it gladly. It, it should be clear, isn't it, that stewardship is not simply the art of giving which is we often confuse it with that. When I started this a few weeks ago, some people came to me and said, oh, man, I thought you were just going to stand up and say you got to give, 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 give. If I could do that and I could get you to do it, I would do it. But because I am who I am, because you are who you are, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I've decided to really back up and say there are certain things that, that make giving more possible. And it's possible that there are people that really can't give as they could because of decisions made earlier in life. And so I'm trying to think of stewardship more holistic as all of life, not simply an act, as a fundamental shift from being one kind of person to being another kind of person. So what we did was we've compared it to Jesus on the side of a mountain feeding the five or 20,000. He takes the bread, then he blesses it, then he breaks or multiplies it, then, then he gives it away, and finally, because there is so much, they leave for tomorrow. Uh, I've wanted to think of a better way to put this, so this week I had an idea, I thought of an iceberg. <laughs> they say that an iceberg is only 10% tip. 90% of an iceberg is under the surface. The 10% is the only part that people see. It's what gets all the talk. It's the awe and the effect. What they don't see is that huge globe, nine times that size, underneath the surface supporting the 10%. So as a rule of thumb, if you want to improve the tip, you have to build the mass. You can't just start adding to the tip. The tip will take care of itself. It'll get larger as you build the mass. So let's take the five things that we just said. Take, bless, multiply, give and leave and put them onto the iceberg 
And we'll say that giving and leaving is the part that everybody sees in stewardship. It what get all the attention and all of the focus. It's what we keep pushing people to do. But what I don't hear enough about in stewardship thinking is the call to take it or to own it. And then the call to bless it or to live within its constraints. And then the call to multiply it or to develop the capacity so that later we can give. If we don't develop the capacity for giving, we will not ever be in a good place to give. So I've taken these middle two layers this week, and this is where the message turned on me and got away. We are called by God, it seems, to bless whatever he has given us and to live within its constraint. But at the same time, we are called by God to develop what he has given us so that it grows, it multiplies, it becomes more like what he intended. Did he not say, to whom much is given, much is required? Just as there are parables that speak about greed, like the parable of the rich fool, you'll never have enough. There are parables that speak against mediocrity, which is the parable of the barren fig tree. The man goes and he goes to pick figs, and when he sees that there are no figs on the tree, he says to the vine dresser, he said, I've come here for three years, and I ain't seen any figs. Cut it down. Note to self, whatever God has given you, Develop it. If you can find a way to stay content and yet within that contentment, develop it. There's a sweet spot there. Let me draw it. You look on those boards if you can't see. I started thinking of it, you guys, as a tension that works like this. This was to bless, this was to multiply. I started thinking, I have to find a balance because by nature I am wired to multiply more than bless. Some of y'all are wired to bless more than you multiply. Right, I'll say it, that's right Steve, that's right. <laughs> but in order to become better at the other one, you shouldn't have to leave the one you're good at. So instead of thinking of it as a continuum, I started to think of it as two overlapping circles. This is what it means to bless. This is what it means to multiply. We are called by God to bless something and live within its constraints, but we are also called by God to multiply what he has given us and to produce more. There is a place where the two overlap, but most of us were born 
with a propensity for one of these and a weakness in the other. If we take what God has given us and we don't bless it, we go straight to multiplying it. It's greed. You never stop to say, this is enough. You just say, how do I get more? It's greed. But if we take what God has given us and we bless it, but we do not go through the hard rigor of making more, it's mediocrity. What's odd to me is that the early church, Gregory the Great, saw the seven deadly sins as including something like greed. Unless sloth counts, they did not see mediocrity as one of the seven deadly sins. I beg to differ. Isn't it just as grievous a problem to possess something that you know God has given you and never to work it so it gets better as it is to just take it and use it for your own ambitions? Aren't they both opposite ends of the same problem? A failure to steward right. It's a failure to handle things right. A failure to bring them all of them, potential in all, into the cause of Jesus Christ. Isn't one side as weak as the other? So what happens if I take what God has given me and I multiply it, but I never stop to say thank you? I'm going to call this unholy ambition. <laughs> Oops, there. It's not sinful. It isn't evil. It's not selfish. It's ambition, so it's good, but it isn't holy. It ain't sanctified. God hasn't got hold of it yet. And so it still has a lot of self mixed through it. Let me be clear about this. You can go into any profession with unholy ambition. You can be a teacher. You can be a missionary or a pastor. You can serve other people in a nonprofit organization, but no one sees that the ambition that drives you is unholy. It will look good and it will produce really good things and the people that eat that fruit will thank you for it. But the dirty little secret is that it's motivated by worry and greed. This person looks at something and says, never enough. This person looks at something and says, good enough, good enough, good enough. Aren't they both up a symptom of this? Is an undisciplined pursuit of more. People with unholy ambition have an undisciplined pursuit of more. They are over 
competitive. They are perfectionists. Because what drives them is never more for some other end. It's always more for the sake of more. It's always perfection for the sake of perfection. It's never harnessed. It's never polished for the purpose of giving it away with grace to others. It's harnessed out of a worry and a fear that we are not good enough, that we're not strong enough, we're not bright enough, we're not competent enough, which leads to the second symptom. It's an unexamined pursuit of excellence. It's a person who strives for excellence and they want to be the best. They want all A's and they want to always win, not because they value excellence, but because there is a, there is a voice inside of them that says, you are a nobody and you will always be a nobody until you prove to us that you're a somebody. And so the drive for excellence is really a drive to shut up a voice inside of us that we cannot shut up. It is never enough. Another symptom is an impatient striving uh, for greatness. People with an unholy ambition always want to be elevated too soon. Too soon. They can't be patient. They must have it now. And so they look for shortcuts. They look for mentors who can teach them in their 20s what it took their mentor 30 years to learn. <laughs> in other words, I want to be at 30 where you were at 50. Give it to me. It's an unholy ambition. I want to start where you started, and then I want to be even greater still. It's an unholy ambition. Because it has as its target me. It is always about me. I don't know why. Maybe I should go see a counselor. I just know that's the downside of it. Everything comes back to how I look. It's an ambition. And you will make a lot of people proud. Your parents will love you. But the dirty little secret is that it's not sustainable. And the dirty secret is you will never be able to give it away because you will never have enough of what it is you're striving for. It's an unholy ambition. All right, I'm through picking on myself. It's <laughs> pretty clear. I, I was born with that gene. That thing will kill you. I'm going to pick on the rest of you for a second. I mean love on the rest of you. I'm going to call this unholy 
contentment. <laughs> Y'all heard that contentment was a virtue, and it is, but too much of one virtue is a bad thing. The trouble lies in the extremes. Their dirty little secret of mediocrity or unholy contentment is not worry, fear. Listen to what the servant in the parable of the talents said. I knew you to be a harsh man, planting where, or reaping where you did not sow. Therefore, I was afraid, and I buried my talent. He, he's content. God, you have given me a good thing. I'm just going to milk that thing as long as I can. There are symptoms of this. One of them is an undisturbed love of comfort. Mm -hmm. People that are too content don't ever take risks. They don't function well under stress. They never want the ball when the game is on the line. The guy with unholy ambitions, a hog ball, ball hog. <laughs> but the guy with unholy contentment just wants to win. He just don't want to be responsible for it all. People with an unholy contentment love to work in places where there are clear boundaries and defined outcomes and good hours. <laughs> Tom Peters in his book, In Pursuit of Excellence, I, I, can't, I can't look while I quote it. He says, if you want to have all of your weekends free, every day of your vacation, and spend all of your holidays with your loved ones. If you want a job that requires hours but no sacrifice, no struggle, no uncertainty, I like you more. But don't complain when you don't accomplish something significant. The tendency of some is to take what God has given them and just say, here, I give it back to you. And sometimes God wants to say, why don't you keep a little of it and develop it? Another symptom of mediocrity or holy contentment is because of their tendency, they never develop their potential for greatness. They never do. Have we all not seen the student who is really, really bright, but they quit after they got an A? Have we not seen the athlete who is really talented, but they quit 
when they make first string. Have we not seen the businessman who builds a business until his family can make a living and then he stops and don't want it to go any larger because it's too much work. The tendency with unholy contentment is to develop something just enough so we can make a living off of it. I got my degree. I have my field of knowledge. I'm a specialist. Okay, now I'm just going to work it. Work it. Work it. Make a living. What if there's more? That's what I'm asking. What if there's more? What if God made you really, really smart for more than what you already have? When I was in school, I was a kid in school, I one time a teacher gave me an A. And then next to the A, there was a little comment, you know, and it said number four. And I went down and I looked at what number four was. And the comment was, capable of doing better work. I was upset and I was vocal about it I know that surprises you but so I went up to the teacher and I said oh I'm sorry I didn't know there was something better than an A how can you be capable of doing if you got she said it's not about an A it's about your potential okay you got your A you happy if you do not develop your potential, she said, you are robbing God and you are robbing yourself and you are robbing others of what might have been. Never should have went after that teacher. No, sir. She is right. Is she not right? The capacity to develop what God has given you, not because it's good enough and you got everything you needed from it, but because there might be more and other people can be blessed. So I'm asking myself the question then, what is this sweet spot right here in the middle? And I'm calling this holy ambition. I started studying Jesus who took a charge from the Father. And while he was while he was firmly content with what the Father has given him, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. He developed it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, he has given him a name that is above every name. So I was asking myself this week as I struggled with this, what would it be like for me to firmly take and bless what God has given me and all the while work it and develop it, not with a restlessness or with a hurriedness or with a discontent, but with the desire truly to do with it what God intended when he gave it to me. Here's what I got. One of the things is Jesus was called. He was not driven. 
He wasn't chasing somebody else's dream and fantasies. He wasn't here. He was always motivated by obedience, not greatness. He never wanted to be great, and so he was. He just wanted to obey. So whenever praise came to Jesus, he had a pattern of deflecting it onto others. He basically said, all the glory that comes to me, I give away. But that's all right, because all the glory that the Father gets comes back to me. He dispossessed himself of greatness. And the only greatness he wore was given to him by somebody else. That wasn't something he earned or worked for. Speaking with someone on our team just this week, I said, if God has called us to be, if he's called you to be great in anything, you must learn the habit of deflecting praise. You must learn to deflect praise. Not because you're humble, but because you're wise. Wise people know how things got done. And so when people praise them, they always deflect it to the others around them that helped get it done. If you cannot deflect praise, there will be a ceiling in your greatness. People will stop giving it because you'll start drinking your compliments instead of smelling them. You should just smell them. Jesus said, I do not accept the praise from human beings. John chapter 5 said it plainly. I don't accept the praise or the glory from human beings. Then he said, how can you believe if you seek the praise and glory of human beings? All right, lecture's over. Are you still there? Let's go to preaching. Oh, relax, I'm almost done. So I want to talk, if I can, to finding the thing that God has given us to do and becoming really, really, really ridiculously good at it in holy ambition. How do I develop what God gave me, whether it's the pursuit of money, the pursuit of excellence, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of talent or skill, the widening of my connections, the development of my virtue, even grace itself. How do I grow what God keeps giving me without falling into unholy ambition? Here's a few things. First of all, I have to find it. i got to know what it is, what I'm calling genius. It's, by the way, genius doesn't mean smart. It's the Latin word, genero, that means born that way. So when you talk about someone's genius, you're talking about their propensity. The, the thing that you were born with a natural inclination, 
Now that doesn't mean that you can't be great at other things. And it doesn't mean that you're already great just because it is your propensity. No, no. It means that we were all born with soil that is more fertile in some places than in others. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I don't believe the best way to find that is to take some examination and come out the other end and go, poof, there are my strengths. You can do that, and that will point you, but I think the best way to do it is for some old person to tell it to you. I really believe that. I do. I'll just speak for the men. I believe there is a hole in every man's heart, the shape of a dad. I really do. And I don't think you ever, ever, ever get rid of that. We can spiritualize that. We can consecrate it. We can say this, that. I just think it's there for a long time. And if a dad does not speak into a young man's heart and say, this is how God made you, son, work that. He will spend the rest of his life throwing things at that hole, trying to fill it. So what I would love to see in our church, you guys, is a rising of the old and a rising of the young in a room together so the old can empower the young. Because the truth is, there are a lot of young people, men and women right now, with a hole in their heart that they cannot fill. And it is not their fault there was somebody in the past, usually a father, for one reason or another, didn't do it. So how good would it be to have an old person know you well enough to say, you're good at this. Do that. Just do that. <laughs> I got a letter from my dad. I was 27, 28 years old. He said to me in this letter, he said, son, I know you didn't want to be a preacher. I know you're afraid to follow my act. I know that you have a lot of insecurities, but the truth is I have seen something in you and I have seen God's favor upon you. I don't know what it is, but I think God is going to do things in your life that he never did in mine. God will do things through you, I pray, that I could only dream of doing. Look, I, I can't tell you how that sets a person free. You spend your whole life waiting for someone to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if they don't say it, you keep chasing it. We need older people to step up and name the greatness that is in young people's lives. And we need young people to get in rooms with older people. And just have conversations. You don't need to suck off of their greatness. Yours will come. You just got to be in a room, man. All right, move on, Steve. Second thing. If God has given you something that he wants you to develop, you're going to have to take a risk. 
People that grow anything, it's always with risk. I'll put it like this. There is nothing that I have in my life today that I truly enjoy that I did not get with some measure of risk. And that's probably true for you. Start with my marriage or yours. There was a day when you had to say, would you marry me if you're a guy? Again, I apologize if you're a guy. I mean, unless you kidnapped her, you had to, you had to ask. She could have said no. You say, no, I think I got this. What if you didn't? You don't exactly back out of that and say, oh, well, if you won't marry me, can we just be friends? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that don't work. So you are putting it off. That's a risk. If your assets are growing, you've risked them. If you're smarter than you used to be, you risked an education. What I'm telling you is with all risk comes the potential for failure. And the reason some of us don't grow anything is because we're afraid of failure. We think it, it just means we're not good enough. We're not significant. So we always want to play the fairway. We never go for the long shot. But I'm telling you, if we're going to make major strides in anything God has given us, we're going to have to put it out there. If you want to develop your power, you have to put your name on the line. And it's a zero-sum game. If you're wrong, you'll lose power. But if you're right, you'll get more power. What you can't do is just politicize. And, well, let's think about that. Drive on. You will have to learn a system. Call it efficiency. You've heard the saying, it takes 10,000 hours to master anything that's actually wrong. Jeff Colvin writes in his book, Talent is Overrated. It takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. It ain't just 10,000 hours. Because if you don't have a system of practice that requires mental energy and gives you constant feedback, you will never have 35 years of experience. You'll have one year of experience 35 times. You have to have a system of developing it. It's a regimented, disciplined, studious, meticulous, focused life. In other words, you'll be boring. Attitude. Every self-help book I read says the same thing. Steve, you need more self-confidence. So I quit reading them. Then you stumble into the New Testament and you discover that the attribute most often missing in greatness is not self-confidence, it's humility. It's humility. He humbled himself and became obedient. Therefore, therefore, God 
is highly exalted. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is what raises the ceiling. I got this hunch that whatever level you're at, God is always scouting you to see whether you're ready for the next level. And he ain't looking for some high level of ambition. He's looking, can you handle that? Because the last thing he wants is to ruin somebody he loves. Humility is the sign you give him that you're ready to go higher. And last, I'll finish here. Find a teacher. Oh, find a teacher. Now, I know that it's the tendency of people in their 20s today to seek mentoring, and I think that's a very good thing. Um, with a couple of, with a couple of uh, qualifiers. First of all, there are a lot of people in this world that want to mentor you that don't want to be on the hook to meet with you every month. There are a lot of people that have a lot to teach you that don't want to feel responsible for your development. So rather than sit down with somebody and say, mentor me, it would be probably smarter, because the people you're looking for are a certain kind of person, it would be smarter to just say, can I ask you some questions? When I have a question, can I write you or can I just call you and, and could you answer? And then here's the Here's the trick. Never stop asking questions. I mean, I have a lot of people that mentor me that I've never asked to mentor me. I've just said, can you answer some? And here's what I found. They are willing to answer any question as often as I ask them, and they'll answer them at length, and they'll do it all week long. They just don't want to be on the hook for my development. So we just keep an open line and say, can I ask questions? Can I bounce this off of you? What am I going wrong? What is my blind spot? What do I need to learn next? Develop a cadre of people like that. Really, not one, maybe three or four. From different realms, you'll want someone to advise you politically, someone theologically, someone professionally, someone about your family life. Find different realms. There's no jack of all trades. You'll need a, a small team of mentors, but you go to them as you need them. All right, are you still with me? Here's what's burning on my heart this morning. I believe that there are some in the room right now who with me have an unholy amount of ambition. It's more, 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 and it is never enough. And I'm asking you this morning, what would it take for you to sanctify your ambition? There are others right now with an unholy amount of contentment. You found it. You got it. You're grateful. There it sits, making a living. What would it take for God to sanctify contentment and move it a little? Would you bow your heads? My friend, what 
has God given you? Two weeks ago, Emily said, just hold out your hands. Just hold out your hands as if you're going to take it. So think back to that moment, and if you're still struggling with it, would you, would you leave the question open, please? What has God given you? Has he given you a stable income? Has he given you a position of influence? Do you have a talent or an ability such that those who know you best usually mention that in connection to you? What has God given you? And how much is enough? The first question is your question to God. God, what have you given me? The second is his question to you. How much is enough? How much before you will be content? And the third is what would it take to develop it? Maybe God is calling some of you this morning to take a risk that you have up to now been afraid to take. Maybe what you heard is, take it, jump, do it. Maybe God is calling others to make a sacrifice that up to now you have been unwilling to make. And you're hearing the Lord say, sacrifice that. You will always receive more than you gave up, always more than you gave up. So sacrifice that. Maybe others this morning, God is trying to motivate or jumpstart, saying to you, I need you to give it all you have. I need you to go back and rediscover the wonder, the beauty, the fun that is in this thing I've called you to do. Rediscover that and start to grow it again.